think again. And one of the things that I can say, and I can say this with absolute clarity, is that when I went out to Patriot parking lot after the whole thing was over, I looked at the vehicles that Raven 2-3 had driven out to New Shore Square, and they had marks in them consistent with bullet strikes. So any contention that they were not shot at, any contention that it was they, they were shooting completely innocent people in the square is absolutely ludicrous. And I can tell you this also. The, the Department of Defense for the military and Department of State for state assets creates the rules of engagement. It took just minutes after Raven 2-3 arrived back in the green zone at around 1 p.m. on September 16th, 2007, for everybody to agree on one thing. The 19 men on the Blackwater tactical support team had been in a hell of a firefight. You, you put two and two together, it sounds like it was a bullet strike to me. It's not a rock. It wasn't any other projectile. It had to be going pretty quick to make a mark on a piece of ballistic steel, you know? As far as me doubting whether 2-3 was engaged, absolutely not. When their trucks came back into the Patriot stationary, you know, you could see the impacts all over the armored vehicles. There was, there was no doubt. In fact, the, uh, the State Department issued Bearcat had been disabled. It had been shot to where it had to be towed back in. But that wasn't anything new. In the week leading up to the Nasser Square incident, Raven 2-3 had been in several gun battles across the wrecked city of Baghdad. That summer would stand out as the height of violence in the U.S. occupation of Iraq. Almost immediately, though, politics figured more heavily in the investigation than facts. In this episode, we're going to investigate the investigation. This is Raven 2-3, Presumption of Guilt. I'm Gina Keating, and I'm here with my friend, Michael Flaherty. Hey, Gina. We have quite the story to tell this week. The first guy you heard at the top of this episode was Nick Poulos. His job was detail leader of Blackwater Worldwide. That means he oversaw the K-9 units, bomb-sniffing dogs, and tactical support teams like Raven 2-3. It was Poulos who was calling the shots from the Tactical Operations Center in the Green Zone as the bullets were flying in Nisor Square. The second voice you heard, that was TJ Hill a mechanic for Blackwater Worldwide in Baghdad. He was the first to assess the damage to the four armored trucks in the convoy. The third man is Keith George, the Iraq protection leader for Blackwater. He was the first to talk to the Raven 2-3 team when they returned to the Green Zone. He also was the person that made sure they showed up for their State Department interviews. Keith George knew the Raven 2-3 investigation was rigged right from the moment he walked back to the Tactical Operations Center. We'll let him tell you why. And Mike, we got other experts to weigh in on how the government conducted this investigation. As Tommy Vargas told us at the end of the last episode, this is where it all started to go sideways. Remember what Tommy told us happened in the green zone a few weeks after the shootings. At first I thought the guy was, you know, whatever, joking, but, and he gives gives me this thumb drive. Mm -hmm. And he says, whatever you do, don't open it in country. Don't review the files on your computer in country. You know, when you get home, take a look at it. But I want you to hold on to it because I got a feeling, excuse my language, I can curse? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He says, I think they're trying to fuck your guys. Tommy was talking about an army investigator named Tony Guerrero. 
I tried to track Guerrero down to check out Tommy's story after I looked through the thumb drive with him. You'll hear us talking about that later on in this episode. But I couldn't ask Guerrero what he meant 12 years ago when he handed that thumb drive to Tommy. Tony Guerrero's friends told me that he died in a scuba diving accident in 2015. So in this episode, we try to figure out what Tony Guerrero meant. All right, now this is the part of the story where we go from the tragic to the absurd. It's the dime store version of a Tom Clancy novel starring an Iraqi investigator, and I use that word loosely, who was answering to Iranian-backed militias, militias that wanted the United States military and contractors like Blackwater out of Iraq. Gina, if someone brought me this script, I've rejected it as completely outlandish. These incompetent bureaucrats all fancy themselves as Jack Ryan, but their utter lack of understanding of what was actually happening in Iraq landed four decorated veterans in prison for life. This is not some spy versus spy novel to Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, Paul Slough, and Nick Slatton, and certainly not to their families. This is real life. Let's get started. My name is Keith George. I worked for Blackwater in Baghdad from 2005 to 2008. Uh, while I was there, I was a, a team leader, a deputy detail leader, a detail leader, and then the IPD, which is a Iraq protection detail. Prior to working for Blackwater, I was uh, an undercover narcotics police officer with the Illinois State Police Metropolitan Enforcement Group Task Force. And uh, prior to that, I was in the U.S. Marine Corps. Keith George had a lot of experience collaring perps on the streets of Chicago. He and Nick Pulos worked together as undercover cops in a Chicago drug detail before they joined Blackwater. They knew something was wrong with the Raven 2-3 investigation from the get-go. As a former, you know, pretty high-level investigator, that anything that they would find from there is tainted. There's not uh, very many places where you're going to go and, and investigate, try to reconstruct or investigate a crime scene in a public place, in a public street, in the middle of a combat zone where there's, you know, rounds fired daily, um, and get any you know, valuable evidence, anything that's not potentially tainted. You know, there's no chain of custody. It's a uh, Finding brass on the street in Baghdad at at that time, you were more likely to find it than not find it in, in those years. The first visual record of this incident is a video shot from a watchtower overlooking Nisser Square just minutes after Raven 2 3 drove out. That video was on the thumb drive that Tony Guerrero gave Tommy Vargas. I got Tommy to sit down with me and explain what was going on. Okay, what are we looking at? Okay, so this is obviously the army post. He's in this tower, his watchtower, looking over grade seven. And this is the truck, the gas truck, a fuel truck, a water tanker, that one of the team members was worried about because they pulled into the circle and they thought that was a V-bid, but obviously it wasn't. And But that's the short video. Okay. And the white Kia is in the middle. It's engulfed in flames and smoking. 
Okay, so how... Next, we clicked on a video shot from the same tower just minutes after the first one. Okay, so who are all these people running? We're seeing so a bunch of people IPs, running. So the blue and white vehicles, the IPs, the, the choppers in the sky, the little birds, Blackwater, Blackwater little birds. Okay, so those are the Blackwater. Yeah, they're just observing now. Okay. And reporting back to the Department of State. This is another gas truck and um. And the gas truck is. These trucks pulling it right there. That's uh -huh. the Iraqi army. Okay. So you know they're on the scene. Iraqi police is on the scene and. And the blue and white cars, you say IP, that's Iraqi police. Yes, ma'am. Okay, were they there when you pulled in? When we pulled in, they weren't there. Okay. I didn't see them. Okay. And this is an Iraqi police officer here in his truck blocking, blocking traffic. Okay, so this must have, it, you must have just pulled out of Nasser Square when this started be, to be taken. Yeah, when that was um, being filmed by the soldier, we just left. Okay, so, and we're seeing literally two vehicles in Nisser Square with probably one, two, three water trucks or gas trucks and an army truck. I mean, there is are not a lot of disabled vehicles here. There are no bodies on the ground. Yeah, um, you can see it. There's nothing. It's completely empty except for the burning car, right? Yeah, and you can see by looking at this video, it, we just left, I would, I would say like maybe 10 minutes and at best probably five. Mm -hmm. But now this is the other Raven team coming. Oh! They thought we were still there, but we were already gone. That's mm -hmm. what I'm saying. It's just we just left the, the scene. Yeah. So they're coming in, and they should be back on base. That's but Raven. They're, that's they're, Raven two two. That's Raven two two. Right. So they're there trying to get us out of a, out of a tick, but we're not in a tick. We we already left. The vehicle's still burning, but pay attention to the street. Pay attention to the, the how clean the road is. If 17 people were murdered on this street. Mm -hmm you would see, you know, family members crying, just the amount of people. Uh, you would see clothes, you would see um, sh or shattered windows from us shooting the vehicles. You would see car parts. You would all see disabled vehicles because, uh, I mean, if we did a massacre, how the media is saying we did, why does that street look so clean then? There's only one vehicle there, the Kia. They just extinguished the fire and there's a truck back i think behind this water vehicle and there's a, a vehicle off to the left flank right far left right so i mean i'm seeing this pretty much for the first time myself but you if you look at the street does it look like people were murdered in that street no there's there's nothing there it's you com know completely I mean, empty street As soon as Raven 23 returned to the green zone shortly after 1 p.m., Nick Poulos told the team leader, Jimmy Watson, to stand down. Watson had directly disobeyed Poulos's order to stage his four armored trucks and 19 men at checkpoint 12 inside the green zone. Watson was supposed to wait for further orders. Watson had then walked his unsuspecting team into what Nick Poulos thought was an unnecessary firefight. Now, there's only two people on the team that would have heard these radio transmissions. Tactical Commander, who's dead, and Jim Watson. Because the rest of the team is on an internal team channel. They've got one radio. They're on an internal team channel. They don't hear the radio traffic from DPD. They don't hear none of that. They hear only what the team leader and other people tell them on the radio in the internal team channel. There's not a lot of doubt in my mind that at least some of them 
we're doing the right thing. The problem is, once again, as far as I'm concerned, and and I'm no historical expert on war or anything like that. I've been through my own things uh, in the military, have my own historical understanding of things and knowledge and stuff like that. But there have been times when leadership was held responsible for doing something or disobeying orders, and not the, their guys. And James Watson was the leader, and he took them to a place they should have never been in the first place. Now, did the bad guys or the Iraqi police or the Iraqi army or whoever the hell was in that that intersection decide to shoot at them first? Uh, there's, pro- there's no doubt in my mind. Why? Well, they just shot. Uh, uh, they just saw uh, a vehicle that they believed to be a V-bit, and they shot at it and, and blew it up. In, in essence. And maybe that incensed some Iraqi policeman, that incensed some other dude with a gun, that incensed somebody to start shooting at him. And that starts the whole thing. That's my thoughts and my beliefs. And I'm going to believe that until I go because I work with that team. I took him out to, uh, to some very bad places and had some very bad things happen to us. So there's no doubt in my mind that they, you know, that they are you know, generally on their game and they're going to react in kind. Yeah, but the, it never—it it doesn't relieve the fact to me that James Watson disobeyed direct orders. As Raven Two Three limped into Patriot parking lot, Poulos was stuck in the tactical operations center, trying to defuse the standoff between the Iraqi army and Blackwater Tactical Support Team Raven Two Two. Raven Two Two had returned Rodina to the safety of the green zone then went back out to help Raven 2-3 extricate itself from Nisor Square. So Poulos asked his boss, Keith George, the Blackwater detail leader, to deal with Watson. While I'm still trying to help the talk deal with the standoff, the OK Corral standoff happening in Nisor Square, um, I get on the phone and call James Watson direct. I said, Stand your team down, stay in the parking lot, don't go anywhere. James Watson said, fuck you. I'm going to go out if I need to help people, and I'm not, you know, I'm going to do what I need to do. So I called the deputy detail leader and IPD detail leader and said, hey, James Watson is refusing to stand down. Can you go out there and relieve him of his duty? Keith George met the team at the parking lot. What he saw left him with no doubt that Raven 2-3 had been in a firefight. When their trucks came back into the Patriot stationary, you know, you could see the impacts uh, all over the armored vehicles. There was, there was no doubt. TJ Hill, the Blackwater mechanic, walked up to the vehicles a short time later. Evan Liberty was standing there, looking at the steel doors of the Bearcat. Here's what TJ saw. We looked over all their trucks, and the first thing I noticed when I got there was Evan Liberty standing to the left side of the truck, and he was looking for damage on the left side. And then they brought me around to the right side, I believe, and that's where the damage was. And we made note of, I think, five uh, possible impacts on the side of the truck. For the people on the scene, and the people that looked at the trucks immediately after the attack, there was absolutely no question 
as to the origin of the damage. It came from bullets, not grenade fragments, not rocks, or any of the other crazy things that prosecutors later insisted at trial. The last order of business for Keith George at Patriot Parking Lot was relieving Jimmy Watson of his command for good. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a really a one-way conversation. It wasn't much of a conversation. I, you know, I told him what was happening. He protested, but I think at that point he realized that, you know, his time leading that team was over. Later, the prosecutors would try to cast Nassau Square as a renegade mission by a group of Iraqi haters. But Keith George and Nick Poulos, who were actually there, not 10,000 kilometers away in Washington, D.C., placed the blame squarely on Watson. Within a couple of hours, the men of Raven 2-3 were summoned to Saddam Hussein's palace, now U.S. government offices. They had to give the first of several statements to the regional security office, the RSO. This is when things started to get strange. Here's Keith George talking about it. Normally when we would have a, a shooting incident, regardless of, of what the incident was, the, uh, the guys would come back in, the team leader and the people involved in the incident, who, like whoever actually shot or saw something relevant, would write a statement. They would turn it into their team leader, their team leader would turn it into me, myself, and the, the other IPD detail leader would review it basically for punctuation and proper grammar, and then we would turn it into the uh, RSO's office. With this investigation, it was pretty evident right away that they were handling it differently due to the fact that they read the guy's administrative warnings and began basically interviews slash interrogations. They were bringing people in individually into rooms and the RSOs or the, the ARSOs were actually uh, conducting interviews of these guys. It was unusual. I obviously thought this was something was going to be different this time, and obviously this was going to be a bigger deal than, not to say that shootings aren't a big deal, but they were handling it as if it was a bigger deal than, you know, a, a normal incident that we had. Um, you know, we're in Baghdad during a war, obviously, obviously there's shooting incidents. It's not like it's unusual for us to, to, to have these incidents. There was a lot of talk that day in the Blackwater compound, especially about the standoff between Raven 2-2 and the Iraqi army and national police. Nick Poulos also heard complaints about excessive shooting from Raven 2-3 team members in the first two trucks. A group of people came into the deputy detail leader's office sometime after this whole thing happened and said, hey, uh, we were in the the front vehicles and this is where we were parked and we could see behind us and we believe that the people in the back vehicles used excessive force. Uh, and Dustin Hurd is somebody that I, I, I had respect for and, and, and was happy to have as a teammate. Um, if he says that there was what he believed to be a B-bid coming towards him and he fired at it, I don't believe that 100% of a hard time. People in the front vehicles, especially the, the gunners that, that didn't fire, I mean, that's what they're supposed to do by using their discretion. If you can't clearly identify a threat, then you don't engage something that you can't identify as a threat. Um, just because they didn't see anything in the front trucks doesn't mean the trucks in the rear weren't able to identify anything. 
and uh, you know, it's, with the amount of impacts that were on the trucks, I think it's hard to you know quantify what is uh, excessive firing, especially if you still have rounds you know coming to inbound towards you. The Raven 2-3 team members each gave several sworn statements in the coming weeks to an alphabet soup of government agencies. It took the FBI three weeks to walk through Nisar Square and interview witnesses. By this time, things were getting out of hand. The men had given confidential statements to Blackwater as part of their personnel records. But within days, somebody leaked Paul Slough's and Dustin Hurd's statements to ABC News. The interesting thing about those statements was this. The contractors couldn't be fired or prosecuted for anything they said. And nearly every single man either saw a gunman or heard incoming AK-47 and small arms fire. The men in the last two trucks took most of the incoming fire and were in the best position to see insurgents firing from three sides of Nassar Square. They were behind bushes, cars, a bus, and a bus shelter. Ultimately, though, it wouldn't matter what these witnesses saw or testified to because a new narrative was being refashioned from the pieces of their sworn testimony. The investigation into Nisser Square and all its participants were about to become players in a farce that served the United States' misguided diplomatic agenda in Iraq. We'll let our criminal defense expert, Joseph Lowe, have the last word here about the predictable results of unchecked power. The federal government will use its criminal courts to achieve its political agenda when it needs to do so. And apparently, um, history is repeating itself again. So once you understand that that's the powers or, or what's behind the checker moves on the checkerboard, well, then it gets fairly predictable and easy to understand why. Well, what's scary about it is that now you begin to realize that all the crap that you were told growing up that you were free and you live in a free country is a fantasy. Raven 2-3 is a production of Think Again Studios. It's written by Gina Keating and Mike Flaherty. Our producers are Ashton Smith, Gina Keating, and Mike Flaherty. Executive producers are Chai Ling, Lindsay Fellows, and Valerie McGowan. Mitchell Weinbaum edited this episode, and he also serves as our associate producer, along with Kyle Hartford and Tina Graff. Lindsay Fellows and Aaron Fullen supervise the music. Our theme song is performed by Chloe Caroline. Thanks to Anne and Neil Corkery for their kindness and generosity. Finally, we owe a debt to our men and women in uniform. Thank you for defending our freedom so that strangers may one day enjoy them as well. For more information about this podcast, go to thinkagain.me. There you can find additional research and primary resources regarding the case of Raven 2-3. You can learn about future episodes and receive updates as events continue to evolve. You can also learn more about our future projects, as well as award-winning films, music, and books created by our team. Thanks to everyone who donated so much of your time and talent to this passion project.